welcome everyone. It's great to see you. And my name's Tim, if I haven't met you before. We're going to um, kick off a series that we started off last year. We're going to head back into that um, now. But we might even just, just for a quick break, just get up and stretch your legs. Jump up and say hi to someone on the opposite side of the room. So you've got to move. You've got to go say hi. I'll give you like 30 seconds. Just, just hi. That's all. It's enough. That's too much. <laughs> Come and sit back down. <laughs> This is good. So now you're talking, we can finish it off over dinner later on and keep your conversations going. Uh, I start something and now I can't stop it. <laughs> it's not good. I <laughs> lost, lost control. <laughs> okay, so um, if, you, if you were here last year, we were doing a series called The Way, which was kind of what we were tracking with over the year um, in segments. And, and looking at what does it mean to follow Jesus. And we're looking at some of the key teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And basically, we're going to try and finish that off over the next few weeks. Um, but if, if you were tracking with that last year, so the Sermon on the Mount is in the book of Matthew. We're going through just chapter by chapter and really breaking it down. Tonight, we're actually going to look at a different verse. It's actually not in Matthew, it's in Luke. Um, it's a bit of a different passage. But I thought this could just frame and position us to get ready for the next few weeks to start looking at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. And, and last year we said the whole idea of this is, is early Christians were not necessarily called Christians. One of the names were followers of the way, that Jesus actually called people to follow him and to pattern their whole life after him. And he actually shows how to live in his kingdom, where, he, where, he, where the, the good life, um, to, to live this life of love and grace that reflects who Jesus is. And, and he teaches us how to do that. Um, but what we're going to do today is kind of take a, a passage that's a, quite a difficult passage. Um, I'm going to read it in a second. You you've might have read it before and kind of been confused. So if you haven't read it, it's going to be a strange kind of welcome to church passage. Um, but I'll read it in a second. And in this passage, Jesus is really upfront about what it means to follow him. He's not like you know when you're sort of at the shops and you're kind of walking and doing your shopping and then there's these people who work in the middle of the aisle? I hope no one who works is here. If there is, I'm sorry. But, but you sort of are doing your shopping and then you see this person and they know that you're coming and they sort of just say, hey, can I just ask you one question? Or they kind of just want to hand you a flyer and it's kind of like fishing and they're like trying to hook you and pull you in. And they're not up front, right? They just say one question, but then if you answer the one question, there'll be another question, another question, and they'll want to sell you all these products, and then you lose all this money. And it's, it's just this kind of, like, they're not up front. But Jesus, in this passage, is incredibly up front. He, he is almost trying to make a point to people who are wanting to follow him about what it really will take and what it really means to follow him. There's all these people who are, who are interested in Jesus. There's, he's got all these crowds there's all these people who have seen him heal people or heard him say these teachings. Or There's probably people there that are just like, oh, this is the exciting thing of the month. There's, there's some guy in town. Like, There's all these people there. And Jesus doesn't just want to say, yeah, everybody come on in. Like, like he, I mean, he, he does. Everyone welcome in. But he wants to be up front at the start. He doesn't want them to come in and then realize what this is about later on. So this is in Luke chapter 14, verse 25. I'll, read, I'll just read through and then I'll make some comments. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So that, that's a full on thing to say, hey, 
you might be sitting there and you're like, I knew this was a cult. That finally, they've revealed it. And it's like, it's like no, it's, I'm going to explain this. It's not exactly what it looks like. Because when you, when you read that at first, you think, what? Like, this is extreme. Like, Jesus is, is saying, all these people want to follow him. And he's saying, well, no, if you want to, you need to hate your family. You need to hate yourself. And you need to carry your cross and basically go to death. It's like, that's not a very good sales pitch at all. So I want to just make some comments, and then what we're going to do through is, is basically just unpack this passage tonight. Because it, it, Jesus is being upfront, but it's not just for the sake of being mean. He's, he, he has really good intentions around this, and most of it is because of the reality of what it means to live in his kingdom. And what I want to do is, is sort of unpack this as we go through tonight. But just to sort of lower the anxiety in the room, when Jesus says to hate your father and your mother, it's not what we would think of when we think of that word. He's, he's not saying like despise them or like emotionally hate them. This, the, the language that's being used is the idea of allegiance and comparison. It's basically like Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you have to let go of your family being first in your life or you have to let go, be willing to let go of them if, they, if, if, if I'm calling you to do something that's not in line with them. It's like if you have to choose between your family or me, that you'd need to choose my fa- your, me, is what he's saying. It's not an emotional hate, but it's this idea of allegiance. The, the message translation makes this a little bit easier to understand. It says, anyone who comes to me but refuses to let go of father, mother, spouse, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even one's own self cannot be my disciple. Still an incredibly hard thing to do. And, and some people even say the idea of hate is almost like the, the allegiance and the love for Jesus would be comparatively so much greater than these other things that it could look like. Hey, but, but I don't think it's, it's the emotion is, is the idea. It's this idea of allegiance or of letting go. And it's interesting that Jesus is, is highlighting two of the big things that people could hold on to that could actually make it really difficult to follow him. I based a fair bit of what I'm sharing tonight on, uh, from a message by a guy named Tim Mackey who, who um, is a Bible teacher in Portland. And he points out in this, packet, in this passage that Jesus is basically highlighting two of the main idols um, of different cultures. Idol is, is like, like a god or something that people will trust and put in the place of God. The first thing that he's really highlighting is family. And this is particularly true of traditional cultures, So, which is what Jesus was in. This, this Jewish culture, like family was so important. Like the, the, your, your identity is, is linked to your family, to your tribe. Your sense of safety is found in your family. Your sense of meaning, who you are, is so linked to your family. That This is an incredibly important thing. And if Jesus is saying that if you want to follow me, you need to be willing to let go of that. And, and to people in that culture, that would sound crazy. Like, you don't do that. Like, like loyalty to family is incredibly important. The idea of just leaving your family and going off and following a guy sounds, sounds crazy. It does not fit with that view of the world. Um, we, we don't necessarily in Australia ha- have that kind of culture, although we still value family in- incredibly high. People, family is often one of the things that are close, most close to people, even if it's not their biological family, but even, say, friends or close friends that they would call family. That these, like, close um, bonds and connections, the idea of, of just leaving them or letting them go can be, can be quite confronting. So Jesus is really cutting across this in a, in, a, in a strong way. For us, though, particularly in Australia or in the West or in more modern cultures, 
Jesus highlights the idol that we have more at the center, which is the idol of self. He said we must be willing to let go of family, but he also says hate or like give allegiance to him higher than ourself. And this cuts right against our culture because our culture in, in Australia particularly, or the West, is so much focused on the individual and the self. And we just hear this all the time and it's just common, this is just fact that like you should be yourself. You should be true to yourself. Life is about you fulfilling your desires and dreams and being all you can be. Like that, we hear that and that's just like, that, that, when people hear that or people talk about that, it's just like, that's accepted. Like that's normal. That, that sounds right. Um, we kind of understand why someone would leave their family and go off and do their own thing because they're being true to themselves. Like to stay in your family and, and, and not be true to yourself kind of seems wrong. But what seems really wrong to, to more of a modern culture is the idea of, of giving your full allegiance or submission or giving somebody else full authority over your life. Like letting somebody else fully dictate your life or, or guide your life or be the basis of your life doesn't sound right at all. It sounds like what well, the thing to do is to treat other people with suspicion and sort of just trust yourself and back yourself. The idea of not trusting yourself but fully trusting somebody else especially some guy that lived 2,000 years ago, sounds, sounds crazy. Like that doesn't really fit with this worldview. And what Jesus is really doing is he's identifying these idols, and one particularly is family in more traditional cultures, particularly more modern cultures, is self or the individual. And he's saying that the temptation that we might feel to adopt Jesus into that worldview it won't work because that's the thing that we're tempted to do that people might be like sort of have a, their family and their tribe and they see that Jesus is this good teacher. Jesus can heal. Jesus is giving food out. Like that's going to be really good for our family. Jesus will be able to help me have a really good family and help us get together and help us have a good life. And we've taken Jesus and come to him and adopted him into our purposes and view of the world centered around family. Or we might say, well, I can see Jesus is a great teacher and Jesus has power and Jesus can heal and actually he's going to really help me grow as a person and Jesus will help me become all I can be and he will help me develop and grow and be my true self. Now there's, there's some truth in that, right? But if, if he is coming to under authority of me, that's a problem. If we are just using him and adopting him into our view of the world, that's an issue. That's what he's saying we can't do. It won't work. In summary, if Jesus is who he says he is, then he cannot be assimilated into our lifestyle and worldview. But we are to shape our whole life around him, including our most deeply held beliefs. This idea, if Jesus is the, the son of God, if he came from heaven, if he is the true king and true savior of the world, then we can't take him and fit him into our worldview, that won't work. Where we're still the authority, where family's still the authority. We can't take him and fit him to our worldview where self is still the authority. It won't work. It, the only thing that makes sense is that he becomes the whole basis of a, the new authority for life, the new way to view everything. There's a quote I'm going to read by Leslie Newbigin who, who puts this really well, particularly in um, the context of Western culture, which is so 
again, focused on the individual, is kind of almost based a lot in doubt and suspicion as well. And, and even kind of publicly, I suppose, in the West, in Australia, um, you, you can't talk about your, you, you can talk about your faith, but it's just your personal opinion. But if you talk about science, you can talk about facts and you can debate. He talks about this idea that in our culture, there's this fact value split. So there's all this, these things that are considered true and facts about the world that you can prove scientifically. Anything that you can't prove scientifically is in the realm of beliefs and values, which is fine, but that's not the, the, the realm of truth. That's, that's about being sincere and believing what you believe and being true to that and just letting people believe all different things. It's, it's, that's not the realm of fact. Fact is in the realm of science. But that, he, he goes through and shows that that's actually a view of the world. It's actually a faith position. That's a very Western Enlightenment faith position. And that actually, we can't adopt Jesus into that. We have to center our whole life around Jesus. And Jesus claims to be fact and to be, in fact, the, the main fact that defines everything. This is how he describes it. He says, At the heart of the Christian message was a new fact. God had acted. And let us remember that the original meaning of fact is the Latin factum, something done. That, that we actually believe not that this is just a personal faith or just our best guess or our best take of the world, but that God has actually done something in history through Jesus, that, that there's actually a fact. He says, God has acted in a way that if believed, again, it still has to be believed, must henceforth determine all our ways of thinking. It could not merely fit into existing ways of understanding the world without fundamentally changing them. He means if God has entered the world we cannot sit back on our, our own sort of view that we've had. Everything has to be redefined around him. And Jesus is claiming that he is the truth, that he is God. And if that is true, we can't sit back and say, well, I disagree with this part, Jesus. Like, like if he is true, then he is God and everything he says is true. And we trust him and give him the authority not ourselves. We, we, we don't fit him into us, but we fit ourselves to him. So what I want to do is sort of take that idea and just break down what I think Jesus is doing as, as he's speaking this to the crowds, as he's being up front, and how this is actually really good. It's really helpful and can help us to sort of identify where maybe we've tried to fit him into us rather than fit ourselves to him. So firstly, if the kingdom is, is true reality, if Jesus is who he says he is, that he's the true king, that life is, true life is found in him and his kingdom in the life of heaven, if he is working everything towards when he's going to heal the world and heaven and earth are going to come back together, Jesus is, what he's really doing here is not like sitting back and just sort of being mean, which is maybe what we kind of read at first. We might read that he's saying, Unless, like, unless I can see that you really aren't going to follow your family or you really hate yourself, I'm not going to let you follow me. Like, he's kind of looking down and we've got to get our act together and we've got to make sure we're really good and make sure we're going to work hard. Otherwise, he's not going to let us follow him. And, and that's not what he's saying. He's, he's merely naming the reality that in order to follow him, it won't work. We won't be able to do it while holding on to other things, other idols. This is um, basically, uh, one way to think of it is like um, going on a hike through dangerous mountains in, in challenging conditions. And you, you have never been there before, but Jesus is your guide. He's an experienced 
mountain guide. And he knows the conditions, he knows the mountain, he knows the track, and he has your best interests in mind. And he says, you won't make it while you're holding on to all those other things. If we're going to make this journey, you need to let go of your pack, you need to disperse your belongings, you need to trust me and listen to me. And there's going to be times when you think what I'm asking you to do is crazy, but you're just going to have to trust me, otherwise we're not going to make it. You see, you see the difference? He's not standing back and just saying, I won't let you. He's saying, you won't be able to because of the nature, because of the reality. Dallas Willard puts it a different way with, with a mathematics maths, um, analogy. He, he says it's like doing maths in high school. And a high school teacher might say this to their student. He puts it in like full-on King James. He says, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except thou canst do decimals and fractions, thou canst in no wise do algebra. It's like, unless you've learned this basic truth, you won't be able to learn this one. He says, it's not that the teacher will not allow you to do algebra because you're a bad person. You just won't be able to do basic algebra if you're not in command of decimals and fractions. It's, he's naming the reality. He's not being mean or just saying you need to be better. He's saying that this is what will be required to follow me and to live in this kingdom reality. So firstly, he's, he's naming the reality. Secondly, he's taking good things. Again, good things like family, good things like our life, even desires that are given by God and, and dreams of our hearts, good things, but putting them in the right place. He's, he's not at all saying, and again, we know this because we cross-reference this verse with other passages, Jesus calls us to love our family, to honour our parents, husbands and wives, to love each other, to, to love children. Like this is, this is all through the Bible. These are good gifts from God. And again, to, to love our neighbour as we love ourselves. Life is a gift from God. The issue here is not the thing, but its position. That if, if God gives us family as a blessing, but we elevate it to the place of God, and it becomes where we find our sense of security and identity and meaning and, and, and purpose and safety, then, then we have a new God and it's not in the right place because it won't satisfy. It can't protect us. There's, there's things could go wrong. People, spouses will let each other down. Um, family members can pass away. There's, there's so much uncertainty there and it, and it won't work and it blocks our relationship with God, the one who gave us that good gift. And the same way with ourselves, that our life, who God's made us to be, is a good thing. But if we take it and then we make ourselves the authority, we put ourselves at the center and we seek to find security and identity and meaning and purpose in our own personal pursuits, again, it won't work because we're not made for that. And we're taking a good gift from God and we're making it central, which, which blocks us from him. This is, this is the idea of idolatry. God gives created things, but then we start worshiping them. Tim Keller puts it like this, if we look to some created thing to give us the meaning, hope and happiness that only God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver and break our hearts. Again, if this is true, that Jesus is the true king, then it makes sense that if we trust and hold on to family, it will destroy us. If we seek to find our identity and purpose in ourselves, it will destroy us. It won't work. The only hope is in him. And then these things are still good. They find their meaning and their purpose in their life in Him. We enjoy family, but, but with an open hand of trusting and holding on to Him first. We live our lives 
but we don't put ourselves before him. We trust him with thankfulness and gratitude. You see, he's putting these good things in their right place. And lastly, it may not seem like this. This may seem like just a really hard passage or a hard thing that Jesus is saying. But actually what he's showing us is the way to true joy. He's, he's showing us the way to recognize and realize the cost. But to recognize and realize the cost is worth it. There's a couple of parables where Jesus talks about this. Um, you might have heard these before. This one says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and brought that field. So this guy is like going about his business, finds this treasure, goes, and it costs him everything he has to buy this field to get the treasure. But the story is about joy. It cost him. It's not about the cost, though, because the joy is so great. He counts the cost and realizes it's worth it. This is the same here. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Again, in this story, the, the guy finds something so precious, so valuable, that it's worth giving everything to find it. And Jesus is saying the kingdom is like that. The kingdom of heaven is like that. Recognizing who Jesus is, is like that. Actually, it does cost, but the cost is worth it. And we recognize this in other areas of life as well. Like, like when, when people are coming to get married, like a, like a man who's engaged to his, his, his fiance, they're coming to their wedding day, and there's a cost, right? Like, like he is giving up all other romantic relationships, all other potential relationships or partners for this one person. Like there's a cost to count on that wedding day. But when we come to a wedding day, we're not sad. I mean, I'd say, oh, it's so terrible. Like he's got this great cost. He's giving up all his potential partners for this one. Like, like we don't say that because it's worth it. He's, he's counting the cost, but he's decided that it's worth it. It's worth giving it up for. This is what, um, again, I'm going to quote Dallas Willard, says that what Jesus is saying, what this passage is really about, is, is to do with this. He says this, what this passage in Luke is about is clarity. It's not about misery or about some incredibly difficult price that one must pay to be Jesus' apprentice. There is no such thing as a dreadful price for the pearl in question. Suffering for him is actually something we rejoice to be counted worthy of. We see this through the New Testament. The disciples, they're beaten or in prison for Jesus, but they rejoice because they realize it's worth it. What they have can't be taken away. The point is simply that unless we clearly see the superiority of what we receive as his students over every other thing that might be valued, we cannot succeed in our discipleship to him. What he's saying is the point Jesus is making is that we need to recognize that he is vastly superior than anything else. That he is vastly superior than family. The dearest, closest relationships we have. He is vastly superior even than being true to ourselves and our own desires and ideas and thoughts. He is worth giving up all of that for. And actually there's a cost, but the cost is worth it. And actually, that's the place and the way to joy. So he's actually showing us that actually when you recognize that, yes, there's a cost, but, but he's so good. And actually, 
So what we're saying then is that he, what he's doing here in this passage, he's naming the reality that in order to follow him, we can't hold on to other things. We have to open and trust him and give our allegiance to him. He's putting good things, things that are gifts from God, he's putting them in their right place. They don't block our following him or our relationship with him, but they're actually opportunities to thank him and grow with him. And he's showing us the way to true joy. And again, in this place, when, when we recognize it's worth it, we let go of these things, this doesn't necessarily mean that everyone has to leave family. Like maybe the people who are following Jesus and like Jesus is going and that he's like, come with me now. Like, like they had to leave. But for a lot of people, he doesn't ask us to, to leave family. And for a lot of people, he doesn't ask us to lose our life, like to, to physically die for him. But the, the, the issue is a heart issue, to be willing, to be open, to recognize that he's actually before those things. Those things are actually secondary to him. But if we realize that, then that means our security, hope, identity, meaning, purpose is in Jesus. And that can't be touched by anything. That's completely secure. That actually we could go through a family tragedy and, and grieve and mourn and it's terrible, but it doesn't take away our security, our sense of joy and peace in our ultimate highest priority, which is Jesus. We could find in our lives that we're in situations where we, we don't really like it. It's not great or we're suffering or we kind of, what we want to do, we're not able to do. But our priority is not in ourselves, but in him and we can find joy in him, even in that place. It's actually untouchable. So, so what we're saying is if Jesus is who he says he is, then he cannot be assimilated into our lifestyle and worldview, but we had to shape our whole life around him, including our most deeply held beliefs. And again, this is, a, this is I guess, a decision, but again, it's a journey, that this is a continual growing in this more and more, because we're so shaped by the way we've been brought up or our in, in deeply held beliefs, but there's this willingness to continue to open to him as we grow with him. So as we respond today and, and as you've just been listening, there might be a few sort of ways to respond or, or things to think through. And, and one of them might just be this idea that Jesus is being upfront, right? He's, he's calling people to count the cost. And the invitation, I suppose, is, is to make a decision, is to decide, well, am I going to follow him or am I not? And sometimes we don't realize that actually that's a decision we have to make, that we won't just all of a sudden happen to begin following Jesus. Like, it won't just happen. Like, it has to be an intentional decision. That's what he's calling us for. And maybe that you've done that, but maybe, maybe you've never done that before. And maybe this is an opportunity to actually think through, actually, actually yeah, am I actually going to follow Jesus and trust him and recognize that he's my Lord, my Savior, my highest priority in my life, and actually make the decision, yes, God, I, let, I release everything else to you. I want you first and foremost. Maybe, maybe you've never done that before and there's, there's just a, a, a need to just let go and, and offer that to God in prayer. And maybe that's, maybe that's like, actually, I'm not ready to do that now. And maybe that's something to talk to him about and to work through and to, and to read about Jesus and recognize and pray that we'd see that he's worth it and would decide to follow him. But with that, I suppose a danger is that then we start to think, well, I'm just going to follow Jesus. Like, I'm just going to do it all. I'm just going to, I'm all in. I've given it all for him. I'm just going to work really hard. I'm going to be faithful to him. And it's just like all in our own strength. 
with confidence in ourselves. And again, this is like Peter in, in the Gospels, if you know the story, like he's like, I'm never going to deny you. Like next minute he denies Jesus. Like, like it's just this confidence in stuff. Like that's not what we're talking about. And at the same time, you might be listening today and you might be thinking, well, if, if that's the cost, like I can't do that. Like I can't follow Jesus. I don't have it in me. Like if I really think about it, I've, I've got nothing. I can't do it. But the thing is, both of those responses are based on finding confidence in ourselves. Either we find confidence in ourselves, we're like, yeah, we can do it, and then we end up being religious and proud, or we end up disillusioned when we fail because it won't work. Or we realize we can't do it, and we have no confidence in ourselves, and we think we just have to give up. But the issue is they're both confidence in ourselves. When the truth is, Jesus doesn't just call for our allegiance, that he'll be the first place. But he also calls for us to put all our confidence in him to be able to follow him. Does that make sense? That, that he's first and we can only follow him by his power and his strength. So don't put confidence in ourselves. We put confidence in him and his grace, his grace that forgives us and, and gives us a new heart, but also his grace that empowers us every day as we seek to grow as his disciples. This is how Paul puts it in Galatians he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So this is, this is another way to put this is, I have no confidence in myself at all, right? Like I consider myself dead. And we, we symbolize this when we're baptized. I've, I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith, confidence in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me that we, we recognize him, that he's the first, he's worthy, but we trust and walk by faith to be able to actually live this out in dependence. And the more we realize we can't do it, the more we trust and rest in him and he empowers us and gives us his grace and his spirit. And as, as we sort of finish tonight, we're going we're gonna to respond with communion um, in a moment. And Jesus, it, 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 I suppose, is, yeah, he's, he's calling people to recognize and count the costs. Like, and we didn't really talk about it much, but in that passage, it, he talks about carrying a cross, like even to follow him. Like, like that there potentially will be suffering in following him and pain and death. And you think that is a crazy thing. But he also counted the cost. Jesus also recognized what it would take to follow and trust his father and to rescue us from sin and to heal the world, Jesus thought about it and recognized that what that would take would be to him to become a human, to live this life, to be betrayed, to be crucified on a cross and to die and to rise again. He recognized that that's what it was going to take. And he counted it. He actually decided it's worth it. And it even says in Hebrews that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus recognized what was on the other side of the cross and for the joy, there was a joy in that suffering and pain and death and evil, but, but there's a joy on the other side. He counted the cost and decided it was worth it. So when he calls us to count the cost and to give him allegiance and, and faith, this is not like a distant God who's just kind of demanding. This is not a God who's not interested or just has rules like this. This is a God who's come to us to rescue us, who has entered into our world, who has suffered 
and now calls us in love. He's shown us his heart and now he calls us to respond. I love this quote. It says, we are called to live as slaves of Christ. Again, that's, that doesn't fit right with the Western like individual free self. Like Paul said, he's a slave to Christ. A church fragrance of selflessness in a culture of selfishness. We are people who give up our autonomy. So this idea, again, we give up our autonomy and authority. Like again, self is so central. And and just in our thinking, as I've been thinking about this week, this week, it's just so ingrained. The idea of giving up your authority and autonomy to someone else sounds crazy. But that's what we're called to do, to give up our autonomy, but not to unjust rulers or authorities, not to people who are going to oppress us and control us but to the one true king, the one good king, the king who has taken all our rebellion, our sin, our injustice on himself. We lay our authority and autonomy down at the feet of the king with scars. That's Mark says. I love that quote. And I just, I just, as we respond with communion tonight, I just encourage you to consider the cross, to consider the cost that Jesus decided it was worth it to come and to reconcile us to himself. And from that place, do business with God tonight. What, what are some things that maybe we need to loosen our grip on and, and release and let go of? And again, it's, this is not at all saying that's easy. That can be hard and painful, but there's actually joy on the other side. What are things that maybe have taken and grip, haven't gripped our hearts, but actually when we see who he is, we see that, well, he's, he's worth it all. He's worth everything. If that's what God is like, he is the true treasure. He is the one that we'll trust, we can trust in and give full confidence and full allegiance to because he is worth it. He would even do that for us.